From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics coming to you via Zoom. Cade Massey hosting this afternoon, this part of the afternoon with my one and only colleague today, Adi Weiner. Adi, good afternoon to you. How are you? Good afternoon, although it's not good afternoon here where I am. <laughs> so Adi Weiner is dialing in from Israel, halfway around the world, and there it is approximately 11 o'clock. We're recording on Monday afternoon, Philadelphia time. Adi, appreciate your being with us. You're awake, you're alive, you're good. How does it feel to be in Israel? This is a place that's kind of licked it for right now, right? Yes. In fact, they have licked it in the sense that there's no, I mean, they're, they're full on um, normal here, except for, you know, when you walk inside, many people are wearing masks. The interesting part is that um, the enormous numbers of prep, Cautions that were taken for me to get here. I had to take two PCR, PCR, not even rapid, PCR tests. And one of the things I always wanted to say is, you know, they're not that, there's not much of that difference in accuracy. You can just go for the PCR, but that takes time to get that mailed back. Um, what was fascinating to me was not only did I have to take two tests, but when I got here, um, they put us all into quarantine, which the government monitors. So you couldn't, it's not even at your, you know, your own kind of risk. The government uh, um, registers where you are and you have to give them your address and you have to give them your, your phone number. And apparently they check on you if you leave the isolation. How, um, do, they, how do they check on it? Uh, they show up at your house. Where they, you said you would be, they show up. And, and there's enormously, they do it. It's not like it's a joke. They absolutely do it. Wow. And it's an effective policy. It keeps people in quarantine. But the way to get out of quarantine is prove you're vaccinated. And to prove you're vaccinated or recovered, you have to have a serology test. So I paid for my first serology test, and I'm happy to report oh that my. I have off-the-charts antibodies. Oh, so my. No, that must be great. works. <laughs> that's a kind of, that's assuring, right? That's assuring, because otherwise it just feels like some magic show that's going on, right? It's an incredibly assuring feeling. I have to say, as, as trusting as I am of the vaccine, and I know that it works, but when people say it doesn't work... The interesting thing is why is it doesn't work because when it doesn't work, and there are people for whom they will get sick, even though you're vaccinated, is it because you're the one in 20 people for whom it doesn't work? Or is it a, is there some other random mechanism? Yeah, yeah So yeah. I was very happy to know that I'm not the one for whom the vaccine didn't work. I have a lot of antibodies. So Adi, real quickly, on, well, one quick aside, you said you paid for it. What does the serology test cost? About a hundred bucks. Did you do it in the States or in Israel? Oh, no, no, they wouldn't trust it in the United States. It wouldn't take my vaccine certificate, which is very odd because in Israel, it's very high tech. So your vaccine um, certificate is, a, is on your phone and it's a, it has a, a QR pa- uh, code and it's all very electronic and integrated with the government and your health services. I whip out my CDC white little card, which is, you know, freighted at the edges and they go, what, what kind of country are you coming yeah, from? Yeah, what is this? What is this? <laughs> so so um, remind us how many people live in Israel. Whenever we hear these kinds of systems, it's hard not to be a little jealous, but it is a much smaller nation. Yeah, you know what? The best analogy is New Jersey, about the same size in population and in square footage or, you know, okay. area. Okay. What, so I, I like the analogy and that's helpful, but what number does that, what is the number? How many, how many about millions? About 10 million, not nine, yeah. nine, nine, nine to 10 million people in, in an area about the size of New Jersey. And like New Jersey, which is mostly Pine Barrens down to the, you know, south, it is also mostly desert in the south. So it's very concentrated country. 
very right. highly dense population. Okay. Um, okay. But the serology, that's their technique and, and that's how they're handling people coming in. But they're talking about handling in uh, large numbers of international visitors in about a month. And this is a country that has essentially no more cases, you know, just a trickle coming in on a daily basis. And they're gonna try to open up to tourists. And the plan is to do serology testing in the airport. Wow, like, which is like not to, that to easy. Get the give the test, but then the results will come later. Or do they actually able oh, no. to yeah. get the results well, straight away? I don't. I, that's a piece that I don't know. I think the results would come potentially within a few hours, and then they would contact anyone who wasn't. I, I, but they right now they do in the airport PCR testing for free, and that's very fast because we've all done that test. It's just a quick swab, swab, and you're and you're on your way. Uh, serology is also fast, but it involves blood, so that's yeah, a whole right. different different mechanism yeah. but it is a pleasure being in a place where essentially well it's like florida so i shouldn't say it's any different <laughs> hold on being different in what, in what way is it like i was going to say it's different than philadelphia but i was in florida too and this is very much oh, like florida it's like you know Adi, um, what a practical question about getting there were you in your mask for the entire flight over i was i mean but that's not a big deal i mean I'm i just kind of so, get used to it I feel the only thing I feel uncomfortable wearing a mask and doing is, is exercising. It's about the only thing that I find genuinely discomforting. Okay. So Adi, back to this thing you said about the antibodies being so assuring, which make a lot of sense to me, but you said it in a particular way. It's back to this question of, okay, when they say 95%, say for 95% effective, is it that everybody's 95 or that the 19 people are 101 person is zero? And so have we ever sorted what that is? And you're, you're kind of suggesting that it's the 19-1 thing because you feel good and safe now that you've got all these antibodies. But what if all those antibodies just suggest 95% effectiveness? So that's an interesting question. And it's probably a curve, right? So there's probably an amount of antibodies that distributes around everyone. And, and that probably is a better, better recognition of what's going on. I don't know more. Maybe we can ask a virologist who would tell us more. I will tell you that there are some vaccines for example, measles, then there are some people who just don't develop titers to it. So they don't develop the antibody response, in okay. which case they are uh, not effective. And that's why the herd immunity is so important. As okay. long as most people are vaccinated, you don't have to have everybody vaccinated. It'll still okay. drive the, the virus away. So I think in this case, it's probably, again, a, probably a curve or a distribution. And it's good to know, they actually told you like where, what, what's, what is the minimum amount to be positive? What would I be see. a lot on, on the code? And I was on the very high end. And so was my wife. So that okay. might be very common, but I would guess that for not everyone, you don't get, and there are stories of people doing the vaccine and not, not get it, showing up any antibodies on the, on the, uh, on the serology. You know, that's a really helpful way to think about it. And I wouldn't have thought of it that way, even though I like to push people away from thinking categorically to more continuously. And that's what you're saying here. You're saying, look, what you really care about is the antibody response. And it's not binary, even if it's relatively skewed one direction, it's not binary. And so you should think about where you fall on that continuum. And that's the best indication of how effective that vaccination was for you as an individual. Super interesting. Now, you we, can, I, I, I understand that some, you know, my sister went out and paid for a serology test and didn't have antibodies. And it turned out that you got to get the right and serology test to the right vaccine. So there's <laughs> that a, would be disconcerting. <laughs> Um, all right, Adi. So that lot of, you're definitely living kind of mainstream uh, COVID right now. What what about stepping away from the Adi Weiner experience and looking around the world? What has caught your eye in the world of COVID? Well, there are two things that I want to talk about. Obviously, India is right on everybody's minds. Um, yeah. Those numbers, Adi, give me some perspective on those numbers because you know I 
maybe we're just now forgotten what it was like at the peak in the States, but whenever I read 300,000 new cases a day, it just blows me away. And then the more terrifying stuff is that the hospital system is just not able to handle it. And people are supposedly literally dying from lack of oxygen, which is just horrifying. Yeah, so I guess I'll put, show, I'll put some perspective on it. First of all, there's about 300,000 cases a day in, his, in India. That's about the most the United States ever had in any point in time, about 300,000 okay. a day. And they're four times larger, a country. Of course, okay. they probably don't have the kind of testing resources that we do. So that probably brings it more down to a level or, or a more even comparison. But the real issue, as you point out, they just don't have the hospital capacity to treat mm -hmm. the very, very ill the way hey, we have. And actually, it, I had a wonderful conversation with a pen doctor who was actually uh, uh, we had David Fagenbaum. I talked to him once on our show earlier, and maybe we'll have to bring him back. He's at Penn, and he's constructing a whole database of treatments uh, and, and for Corona um, and COVID nineteen to figure out well what's what's working and what's not working. And we have generated over the year that this virus has been with us a whole slew of actually effective treatments for late stage COVID nineteen that do have an effect from the earliest treatment, which was the dexamethasone, which is a steroid, which probably reduces deaths by about 25%, to the proning, the lying on your belly that, that people discovered early on, that helps, um, to not putting people on, ice, um, on ventilation as early as they were doing. Um, and, and I'm not sure India ha has the resources to even do those things. Who knows? I don't know, but it doesn't look pretty, but it is an, an absolutely enormous country that doesn't have the yeah, which is, hospital. Which that just magnifies the impact of everything, of course. It does sound like the corners of the world, around the world, are mobilizing to try to get more resources to those guys. And um, that's it's heartening in one hand, but it's also disturbing that there wasn't more, be there wasn't better planning. I mean, this thing is so, none, nothing is surprising about any of it, right? And even the India spike has been going on for weeks now. And once we see, I mean, what, it's one of these things, Adi, where I feel like, once we see the thing tick up a little bit, we have a pretty good sense, especially if we understand the raw material, we have a, we have a pretty good sense of what's coming next. And so it's a little frustrating that, you know, okay, so the great, so great Britain is sending 200 ventilators. It seems like that could have been organized before. Now. The problem with India is that India was a case where they seem to have skirted it. They had right. early on, they were, kind of, it was light, had, it was light, right. It was light and it just didn't pick up. And in fact, I remember reading a, a lengthy article in the press, just kind of figuring out, well, why, why has Africa completely avoided really any devastation coming from COVID-19? Why had India avoided the same thing? And the question was really raised as, as unanswered at that time. And so there was a feeling among India that they, the worst was behind them. So should, what do you point to? Well, a few of the things that we know are dangerous, and we don't know that much because there's so much overkill and, and guesswork. But the, I, if I had to say, there's, is there one thing that really a country should be doing to avoid having a, a big COVID breakout? It's large indoor gatherings. Yeah. And they were doing yeah. that. Yeah. And, if, and if that happens among a population that, wasn't, that felt that they weren't going to um, get it, it could travel massively and quickly. There, I think for the, the uh, I think it'll probably blow itself out pretty quickly because it tends to rage through quickly and then go away. Um, but it won't leave, it will leave a, a, a trail of devastation. There's no doubt. Um, 
So Adi, the one speculation is that new variants are driving some of that activity. And I guess there's kind of yeah. a perennial, perennial question, a weekly question for us to ask, what have we learned? What are we worried about? What, is it, what does it feel like the impact closer to home will be of new variants? So let's just throw out what people are saying, and then you can tell me whether or not you think it's happening. So people are def definitely worried that new variants will continue to crop up if you don't actually vaccinate everyone and end this. And that is definitely true. The more it spreads, the more, it, the more mutations occur. The second thing we know is that some mutations are more contagious. I think that's something that's absolutely true. Now, from everything on, I'm about to say right now is conjecture. So the conjecture is that some of the variants are more dangerous. Eh, I'm not sure there's much data that says that's true. Okay. So and that's I, because of the confounding. Lots more cases, more deaths, right. but not necessarily conditional on getting it, you're more likely to die. Okay, so it's one of the stories in India that they survived that first wave for the reasons you discussed, we think, but this new wave is a different variant. And there's something about that that they're they're more susceptible because it's a different variant. And 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 or because it's more contagious. There was a there was some complacency there, and so that contagiousness plus their complacency has been explosive. Well, what I would say is that um, I think those things are probably true. The new variant is certainly more contagious. I mean, the British one ripped through the, the countries that exhibited a third wave was mostly British, saw much bigger caseloads than they saw in the first two. That was true in the U.S., true in England, true in Israel, even where the British variant is everywhere. And I guess the, would guess that new Indian variant, whether it's the British variant and some minor change is also probably very, very, very contagious. And they were definitely complacent, un undoubtedly, or, or at least they felt that it was past them. So that un understands that their behavior changed. But the real concern for the, vi for the variants is, will the variants cause the vaccine to be ineffective? Yeah, exactly. This is what I was about to say from a, you're, you're vaccinated now, and I know you've been sign big relief since then. And, and of course, lots of us are vaccinated now. And one of the reasons to continue to show some caution about what kinds of situations you put yourself into when you wear masks, one of the reasons is eventually there'll be some variant that comes around, at least with some probability, some new variant that gets past your vaccination. And probably we'll have a heads up about that, but somebody's not going to have a heads up. And so what, to what extent do you, are you like, no, Cade, small probability, I'm not going to let that change my life? Or are you like, yeah, that's a, that's a real thing. And so it does still call for some, some prudence. Well, you know, one thing I've learned about the medical community is that they tend towards the most extreme events, giving them more probability than they deserve. I mean, that, I've had a real, we've all had a real up close and personal with the, with the experts. And they tend to not, not catastrophize, but over emphasize the probability of what I would call small events and not differentiating the sizes of those small events. So I, they are all saying from Fauci on around that new, va new va variants can become um, difficult for the, for the vaccine as it currently is constituted to have a um, impact. But the good news of course, is it hasn't happened yet, right? So we're just waiting for something to possibly happen that hasn't happened yet. The virology of it, as I said on our show a bunch, the difference between the mutations here, they're not the giant changes that you see in the flu vaccine on a year to year basis. They're really much smaller um, because there's so many possibilities for having uh, mutations. 
most of them are very small. And so I'm not so concerned yet. Okay, let's talk about um, where vaccines are in the US. We've managed to kind of plateau this thing for a while, but we're kind of merely plateauing it. We are at 53 or so percent of the adult population of the US with at least one vaccination shot. In, in, the, in the senior population, it's more like 82. Overall, it's something like 42. But we're also seeing a slowdown. We're, we're, we're off the peak of something like, you know, whatever it was, 3.3 million a day or something. We're off that peak. If you look at states, we're now at the place where the state with the most, the highest percentage of their population with at least one shot is twice as high as the state with the lowest. So New Hampshire is leading the pack with 60% of their population, their adult population has, no, 60% yeah, 60 of their adult population, no, 60% of the entire population has at least one shot. Mississippi pulling up the rear, 30% of their adult population, their whole population has one shot. So where are we on vaccination in the U.S. and where do you think it's going? Let me throw out a statistic here that sort of is surprising. There's a study the CDC did at a nursing home where there was a breakout. And in the nursing home, there was about 75, uh, maybe 100 or so residents and about 60 or so, 70 or so healthcare workers. The residency vaccine rate was around 80%. This actually yeah. surprised me. I thought it would be higher, but yeah. okay. Do you want to guess what the healthcare worker uh, vaccine rate was? I mean, you would have thought, if he hadn't told me anything a year ago, I would have said, you know, 90%. But now, based on what I've heard, that I'm going to go with below 50. Well, it's a good, you're right on. It's around 50%. It wasn't below 50, but it was almost exactly 50%. It uh -huh. shocked me. It shocked me that healthcare workers who work in a nursing home wouldn't all get vaccinated. And again, thinking, I'm sitting here in Israel, its success was, it, they basically said, if you want to go out, you need to be vaccinated. Yeah. And in fact, when I went, checked into this hotel that I'm in right now, because they didn't accept our CDC looking card, they're looking at that sucker. They, they check with their guests to make sure that they all have the vaccination. Otherwise, you don't come to this hotel. Yeah, That's the way it is. So I don't think we're going to see vaccine rates get to where they need to be unless we have some kind of push. As I said before, a shove is needed to get people to do it. And well, the sad thing is so many people just don't think it's necessary for them to do it, but, and they're not doing it. So well, there's, there's just, I know it's, it's so there's, this is a big, this is a big story. We kind of held off on it for a long time because it seems second order and now it's first order. It's clearly first order and it's astounding. So let's just give you a few anecdotes and then maybe a little data. Um, you would say we need a shove. There aren't that many shoves available, you know, and the U S isn't real big on shoves. And so any, in, in the political environment, makes shoving especially unpopular for a big chunk of the population. So, right. um, you know, even at Penn, Adi, there, we had a faculty meeting today, our, our Wharton faculty meeting, you know, each semester, whatever was today. And the dean is up there saying she's encouraging us. She's strongly encouraging us. She's giving us a pep talk to go out and get vaccinated. And of course, we had the email. We know this is available. We know it's a big push. But it's remarkable to me that it requires a pep talk. I mean, it's something that everybody, I would be perfectly fine if it was required, but, but there's a reluctance to do that, even in this environment. And this is obviously a, a kind of an overeducated environment. All right, I'm gonna throw out two things that I think we need to do to try to get us better. 
One is we need to tell people that the vaccine is safe. No holding back. And the problem is, is that we confuse unknowns with high probability or things that we should think about. I did a little research into unknown long-term effects of vaccines. Turns out they don't happen. When a vaccine has a, a, a side effect, sometimes it takes a while before you learn about it. And that's generally because vaccines aren't, you know, they take a long time before they, you get millions of people to take it. But when they do have an effect, they happen quickly. So the consequence of that is now that we've had 100 million doses or 100 million people who've taken the vaccine or more, and that's just in the US, anything that's gonna happen short term, and I mean by short term, like within a month, we should know about by now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But see, I, I don't think I don't think it's a I don't let me give you an anecdote that just blows me away, purely anecdotal. But I don't think it's a matter of like the real message isn't out there. There's like legitimate scientific concern. The problem is just the complete craziness that is trafficked in out there. So I happen to have a, a, a beer and a pizza with your buddy Shane Jensen last night in Center City, Philadelphia. And as we're standing outside this place to go in. Another fellow walks up and he's picking up an order and we just kind of start chatting with him and we talk about the vaccine. He just seen his mother and she has a swollen arm. And so he's I, I don't, and we're like, no, man, you need to get the vaccine. He's like, I'm not going to get the vaccine. Like, Why not? I said, well, they put herpes in. He said they put herpes right. in the vaccine and he's 100 percent serious. And yes, that's a, it's I mean, like, I mean, I don't know who benefits from spreading that kind of information, but this is not like run of the mill scientific skepticism. This is some crazy crazy stuff that has people reluctant and, and some populations reluctant. Well, there are different kinds of, you know, there, each population has its own own uh, brand of reluctant craziness, right? So the herpes is in it is one. The other is that is that it's actually killing people, has bad side effects, not not yeah. herpes, but bad. Yet the government is, is, whole, is, is covering that up. That's more yeah. of the right wing conspiracy, that there yeah. are really bad side effects that the government is, is, is covering up. Yeah. Then there's all kinds of local conspiracies, like for the herpes one. But there's also one that my, my son told me about um, is uh, that somehow there, that this is the vaccine has been hardwired to kill minorities in particular. Right. Right. OK. All right. So these are things you're not going to treat with, you know, you know, it's safe. And you're not. I, I, right. I don't know. I don't know how to get at that. That has got to be I leave that to people who have much more expertise than I do how to combat those things. But I, I do think there are many people who aren't talking, you know, craziness or nonsense, but just genuinely concerned people because people do get the flu afterwards, the mini flu, what I call it, you know, a, yeah. a day of, of sickness, a day. You have swollen yeah. arms or, day right. or two days sometimes. Yeah. Um, but and the, many people do talk about long term effects that people haven't measured yet. And that's just nonsense. The, yeah. It is so effective. The blood clots are extremely rare, extremely, extremely rare. Um, but the other piece of it is, and this is, I think, the most important thing is because Fauci went on the air again today and said, I don't think you guys need to wear masks outside if you're vaccinated. And I'm telling you, Fauci, enough already. It's too cautious. Stop it. I agree 100%. So C CDC came out with this guideline today. I'm like reading the headline. Headline, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear your mask outside. I'm like, you've got to be frigging kidding me. I mean, this is so antiquated because that was not necessary even in the first exactly. place. That was a cautious measure at the height of the epidemic. And now he's saying, okay, you can end the cautious measure. He's, it's just bullshit because quite honestly, you're not going to tell people 
to, to, to convince people to take the vaccine if you don't also tell them that it will bring them a normal life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it really is one of these places where I think it's counterproductive. And we've been, I've been whinging about it on the show because Philadelphia is so much, everyone's still wearing it on the street. And I appreciate the norm at some level, but it does feel like you're taking things so far that it's becoming counterproductive. So let me, note, right. let, me, let me note real quickly, Adi, that there is an example, a good example out of Texas in this past week, the first hospital in the country to require their staff to get vaccinated was Houston Methodist about a week ago. And they took Bravo. a lot of flack, a lot of flack for that. You could imagine, especially in Texas, politicians don't like these kind of mandates. But the head of that hospital system stepped up and, 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 and declared that. And I'm I think it's a great move. Hopefully, I think there are some other Texas hospital systems that are going to follow suit. I'm going to be interested to see how they deal with the downstream consequences. So what happens when some staff refuse in some way? So I, presumably they're going to lose their jobs. But if many do that, those are pretty big consequences to deal with. And it's going to be interesting to see how everyone handles it. And I, I think that we, I mean, we can't have government um, rewards and punishments, I don't think, in this country. But we can have private enterprise applying it. How about Penn? You know, we're requiring students to be vaccinated when they come back they're not requiring us faculty but how about you know if you want to come back to campus you have to be vaccinated otherwise no. you're you know you're i don't know maybe maybe some faculty would want to continue to zoom anyway um it's just easy but bottom line is is that we have to have more of a message out there that vaccine means normalcy it, and and that message is absolutely not happening it mm -hmm. works and i'm going to finish off with the cdc study i mentioned earlier because it's absolutely fascinating It because it confirms two things. First of all, the vaccine works because guess who got sick among that working home and had a big nursing home that had a big outbreak? People who weren't vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Guess who died? People mm -hmm. who weren't vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Guess who also showed up with positive results? About one-tenth of the vaccinated people. Mm -hmm. So this is a virus that got every single person in the nursing home who wasn't vaccinated. They got so, they turned positive. Adi, I, I feel like it's 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 a tough learning in, environment psychologically because the victories are absences, and so it's not you're not really reinforcing in the most psychologically compelling way. It's like when it, when the thing happens that's supposed to happen that you're trying to sell people, you're trying to tell them this is going to happen. It's a bunch of nothing, and that's just not very reinforcing. Okay. Why don't we wrap there for the first quarter? We've still got three quarters of the show. We're going to get into some sports on the other side of this. This is Cade Massiven sitting here with Adi Weiner talking across the world to my man over there in Israel. We will be back after the break. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do this every week. Coming to you via Zoom. Have been since March 2020, Cade Massey hosting this quarter with my buddy, longtime Wharton Moneyball colleague and good friend, Adi Weiner. Adi dialing in from Israel tonight. This is Monday afternoon, Philly time, Monday night, Israel time. You can jump into the conversation if you'd like. Reach out on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to get us at W Moneyball is our handle up there at W Moneyball. We'd love to hear from you. Ideas, suggestions, criticisms, opinions, whatever you got. You can also send us a mailbag of sorts. Email is our mailbag, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Again, we love to hear from you. Adi, we've got a few minutes to talk sports here before we talk Kentucky Derby. 
it is that time of year. And that means we have a conversation with our buddy, Jeff Cedar. One of the highlights for me every year. We got Jeff coming in here in just a few minutes. But before we get to the Derby, what around the sports world has caught your eye? Well, the only thing I've been paying very much attention to, um, other than the NFL draft, which I know we're going to cover later, is uh, baseball. <laughs> and uh, just before we go on to talking about something more scientific or substantive right now, I do want to mention that we, we, we talked about the disastrous flailings of the Yankees. Um, and then they promptly went on to win a bunch in a row. Uh, yeah. But without really making very many very good progress on the hitting side, they look terrible on that score. And then, of course, they just lost a couple. So a week later, and it, it's still not, not where we want it to be. But what was really interesting to me was we had Bumgarner throw a seven-inning no-hitter. Yeah. Now, now that seems odd. Why seven so, innings? But just, yeah, that was because it was part of a doubleheader, yes? That's that crazy rule. So we've kept a bunch of crazy rules from the pandemic year. One of them being the doubleheaders are seven innings, just to start with. The other crazy rule is, is, the, is the extra inning always begins with a runner on second. Yeah, right. So those are the two really odd ones that have really changed, in some sense, the game. Because um, what the hell is a seven-inning game? And so one, one might ask, what the hell is a seven-inning um, no-hitter? The answer in my book is, well, not that much. Really? So talk, I mean, talk just, how, how, do you, how do you think about it, right? Well, because you have to remember, one of the reasons why, why double headers, I mean, no hitters are so rare, is that an inning without a, a hit, it, just one inning without a hit, is um, it's not that likely. I mean, it's like one third of innings don't have any hits at all, right? Just on okay. a little less than that. It's more like a one third to a quarter have no uh, hits at all. That's surprising. I would have put it at higher, but that's me thinking baseball. Nothing happens in baseball. <laughs> you would have thought so. No, well, most you know, so remember the, the league batting average is 250. And they get about at least three at-bats. And if there's yeah. a walk, then there's another opportunity there. So okay. uh, the on-base percentage is higher. So there's an average of it. You know, the minimum number of at-bats per inning is three, but many innings will have four without even getting. So you typically have about four opportunities to get a hit in an inning at minimum. Uh -huh. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. each one is about one in four. So it's about, you know, it's around one in three or so, okay. or maybe a little less. So okay. in one inning, it's one in three. So one in three raised to the ninth power is that's a no hitter approximately. Okay. And that's a pretty small number, right? Does it get larger? How much larger does it get when those aren't independent draws? I mean, there's some, obviously ah. if, if Baumgartner throws every inning for you, it's not, you know, they're related. Well, that's true. So, and that's probably the reason why they happen, right? Because there's a hitter, there's a pitcher when they have terrific stuff, it isn't one and three. It's more like um, something like getting a hit in an inning becomes even less likely or not getting and, hit becomes and, even higher. Well, it, it, it must be the case that observing, observing no hits in one inning is a positive predictor of observing no hits in the subsequent. And, and that's why they happen. So, because let's say a quick calculation if you just if you trust my mathematics, if you take uh, 0.3 and raise that to the ninth power, you get 0. 0.00002, which would suggest you don't get you maybe you get fewer than one hitter no hitter a year, and that's that you typically have a, a bunch in a year. Yeah. So it has to do with pitcher variation much more than it has to do with just getting lucky and getting through it. Mm -hmm. Pitchers when they are throwing no hitters are genuinely amazing on that day. Okay, but seven. It, does, it sounds like seven is close to nine. That's a mistake. Seven is still very far from nine because it's duplicative. So 
whatever the number is, 0.3 to the ninth is about 10 times smaller than 0.3 to the seventh. Yeah, right. So that's sure, sure. So that's helpful. But also, is it not the case that um, getting those last two innings is harder than getting the first two innings. There must be some d- increasing probability of a hit as a guy as a guy throws. Now I know you've just done some of this research. Now you were mostly focused on earlier in the game, like the third time through the batting order. But there has to be kind of a monotonic decline in the pitcher's success as a function of how long he's been in the game. Okay, so one of the things that, that I learned from that is that it, on average, things decline almost almost linearly from about the sixth at bat to about the 17th, 16th, 17th, that stretch. After that, it's a big wobble because most pitchers get pulled anyway. Yeah. And I'm just going to pull on the, the, the um, interview we did with the pitching expert on, um, on uh, arm fatigue. And his point was, um, maybe Maddie, Maddie can pull up the name. Um, his point was pitchers get worse almost as they fatigue and the damage they do is when they're rarely tired. Yeah, and maybe sure. a guy, when you're on pitching a no hitter, you have the stamina and the strength to make it. Hold on. I'm not buying. I'm, I think that wobble is just because you don't have data. I'm not buying that the true performance doesn't monotonically decline with every, with every batter he faces at, at some point. Anyway. And maybe there's a little warm up in the beginning. Maybe you get your stuff after, you know, top of the first, I mean, the end of the first, inning or something but it's got to decline no well you know what i can tell you as an experienced baseball watcher and i've watched many amazing pitching performances all the way out to the very end they certainly don't look like they do now that could just be our bullshit in our way through you know anecdotes uh, beliefs um rem- I don't know, are, you, are you memory. sure you're not, are you sure you're not remembering the cases where they actually made it through the end of the game and not the cases where the guy gets rocked and gets left in one batter uh, too uh, long that's that's probably right but come on uh theoretically it has to be theoretically it has to be a monotonic decline well no on average well yes yes that's what i'm saying in an individual instance it doesn't have to be in expectation i bet it does in expectation (laughs) yes that's the same thing as that i know i mean in in the individual the expectation for a guy for a guy on a day Ah, on a given day okay that's the thing i guess i dispute i i think that that, I mean, maybe this is because I've seen Nolan Ryan in his prime and guys who simply seem to have as much velocity at the end of the game as they've had in the beginning. And if anything, uh, Adi, the so velocity is, does measure, does go uh, down. Okay, so fine. So maybe, maybe my intuition is if the guy is going to pitch 18 innings and I'm going to be correct over an 18-inning stretch. But maybe Absolutely. for the guys with the best arms on their best days, maybe it's flat Maybe it's flat for through the end of the game. Maybe. Okay. Also, remember when you pitch a no hitter, you haven't wasted any time with extra at bats. So your number of pitches thrown at the end of a no hitter tends to be what an ordinary pitcher would be throwing at seven innings. Okay, this is a really good point. This is a good thing for your guys. So Adi has a for listeners. Some listeners know this. Adi runs a a a, a, a a, a seminar with with students around here, both undergrads and grad students. And over the years, this thing has grown into being quite the little workshop. And so you can you can throw out the questions you're interested in, and sometimes it comes back six weeks later with like deep empirical answers. So that is a really interesting question, a good observation that these guys who manage to throw no hitters are are being so much more efficient. It's like 
they're in the fourth inning when the average pitcher is in the seventh inning or something. They just got freshness. Shane is here and Shane disagrees. I don't even think I don't I disagree with the assertion that they even I mean they're certainly being more efficient than your average starter, but no yeah. hitters are not maximally efficient. A you do, A you are not facing the minimum number of batters, and you're not throwing the minimum number of pitches. Well, those things are like a ground true, ball. A ground ball pitcher that allows men on base could easily throw less pitches than somebody who walks people, but 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 throws yeah. a, throws a no hitter. I think I think there's a little whataboutism here because on average you'd have to expect that they're going to come back with the averages. On average, yeah, no, I, I understand. I'm only than... pushing back because uh, as I came on, I think Audie was using Nolan Ryan as some kind of representative of a population of baseball pitchers. No, no, no. I'm like the most extreme observation (laughs) in the history of baseball. No, I'm using an extreme observation, but he had more no hitters than anybody else. And uh, he, and, and, and and I, and I think I got to watch them. And when he was pitching, of course he's extreme, but in his, the end, he's still throwing as hard as he started. And although it's generally well calibrated that the pitchers lose their velocity as the game goes on. And the question is, are the, the very extreme pitchers who throw no hitters, are they doing so because they're the extreme group that doesn't tire in that one game, or are they just the lucky group? Right, right. So it'd be good to look at some, I mean, every, these things are so precisely measurable these days. And so we needn't speculate. We can find out exactly how performance changes over the course of a match in a, a game. But a speed is one thing, but placements another and touches mm-hmm. by the batters are, are another. And so we could dig into that. And I do think it's, it's kind of interesting, but why don't we change gears now and talk a little bit of Kentucky Derby. We're back to the first weekend in May, which has always meant not always, but for a long time meant Kentucky Derby. We missed it last year. And part of missing it last year was missing our annual conversation with Jeff Cedar. So I'm delighted to welcome Jeff back to the show. Jeff is the founder, owner, and president of EQB Inc. We'll talk about what EQB does. He's a longtime friend of the show. He's been in the world of horses for over 40 years. He's a leading talent scout buyer for young, unraced, thoroughbred horses, race horses. That means the guys that you can't forecast, right? They're hard to forecast. This is like going into the into the amateur draft of baseball and finding who's the future Bumgartner going to be. Jeff, always good to see you. Welcome back to Wharton Money Ball. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay? We hear you well. We hear you well. Jeff, you don't know this, but we were real close to showing up on your doorstep this past weekend. We were speculating on whether we could round up a group of us and jump in a car and come out and see you. We've been threatening to do that for a while. We will do it eventually. Tell us what your pre-derby week looks like. We know that you're mostly involved at earlier stages, but how do you prepare? What is involved with you this week as you roll into the derby? Well, there was a just an enormous sale of 1,200 young two-year-old racehorses down in florida in ocala that just ended and we so i had to do that work because what we do is we don't look at the pedigree and the catalog page we go down and look at all the horses yeah i started out in the olympic sports medicine movement and we didn't look at the parents or the resumes (laughs) looked at the athletes so uh that's what we do in order to try to figure out who's going to do well and we do as well or better than anybody in the industry because we don't do it the way anybody else does. So tell us about the tell us about the show, Jeff. So is this do they do the do they do the sale this time of year every year? Yes, they do. The young two year olds and then they they actually you can see them with a jockey on their back going at racing or even faster speeds, but only for about an eighth of a mile, one furlong. Okay. And uh 
and you can examine the horses. So we do that. And how many, just, how many horses? You said a lot of horses for sale. How many horses did you, did you examine? There were 1,200 at that auction. Oh my gosh. Oh my and I had gosh. to look at every single one of them in slow motion to digitize this, that, and the other. So, so that is, I was going to say, do you have some way of culling them? Because well, one, how many different ways do you want to look at them? And I know one thing you've talked about in the past is that you, you take video of them racing and you digitize the, 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 their particular motion. And you've been able to do this enough over the years to break that motion into diagnostic pieces and say, well, I like the way this horse moves essentially. And I'm not going to trust my eyes or my intuition. I'm going to trust my computer. Is that, is that a fair representation? of Yes. The the guys who say they can see it all, they cannot, because I know they spend regularly 300,000 or more for horses that I know are not going to last. They're fast for an eighth, but that means they'll, you know, they'll win the first half of the race and die they'll poop out or they'll get hurt early in their yeah, careers. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the stuff that is, you can see clearly if you have high resolution, uh, like 500 frames per second video. Uh, if you use regular video and you try to slow it down or stop it, there's not enough data there. Speaking of data and yet, so you just get a, a blurry and they, you cannot see things that turn out to be statistically incredibly important that are in fact, absolutely invisible to the naked eye no matter how experienced you are yep yep what's your sense of how many other buyers are out there doing that kind of digitization and quantification there's a lot of cheap in imitations and i go and listen to them and watch them there's almost nobody else who does it they do it with a video camera and they'll slow it down and they'll tell me they don't need that fancy 250 to 500 frames per second and i don't say anything you do because without it, you cannot see the mm-hmm. stuff. This is that I've proved after 40 years and 50,000 horses and following mm-hmm. every inch of every race they run and all that kind of stuff. It's the statistical relationship is very tight. The other so thing Jeff- that happened was there were guys at Harvard who did a lot of research on treadmills into the bioenergetics of quadruped locomotion. And they did it on iguanas and turtles and elephants and gazelles, and dogs and lizards. And uh, they produce these equations. And these guys, a lot of these guys say that it's biomechanics. They're using those equations to see who's the most efficient. Well, I did that. I mean, I did it for years. I did it with enormous amount of data to see if that works. It does not work. It will separate a uh, uh, gazelle from a dog or an elephant from a turtle. It will not tell you the difference between a, a reasonably good racehorse and a great racehorse, which is what we right. need to do to right. win the Kentucky Derby, which we did. Uh, with the first Triple Crown winner in 37 yeah, years. Yeah, talk, talk to us about that because we were we were visiting with you, Jeff, and we visited with you in the years before that, and then we visited with yeah. you that year. And um, you're talking about American Pharaoh, of course, first Triple Crown winner in 37 years. How many years? Was that 17? 16? What year was that? Uh, 15. 15. Okay, so you, I, my memory of that, and it's one of the great moments in our seven years of the show, you talked about American Pharaoh's heart, if I'm not mistaken. And, yeah, among and, other things. He wasn't just the first Triple Crown winner. He was also won the world championship that year, and he set track records all along the way. Nobody's ever done that. So he did it against the older horses as well. The Triple Crown is only for three-year-olds, which we should talk about in a minute or two. Yeah. But he, yes, he was, we had bought his mother, and she fit all the, the, uh, the, the criteria that we have, all the different variables. So she was an extraordinary individual physiologically, but she got hurt in her second race. And we had also participated in getting his father, Pioneer of the Nile. His mother was little Princess Emma. And then when he came along, 
uh, the Arab, it was owned by a guy from Egypt and the Arab Spring had happened and it had shut off his, a lot of his cash flow and the Egyptian pound got devalued 50%. And he put the horse on sale as a yearling. My job wasn't just to help him buy horses, but also help him decide who to sell. And I remember, and they put this as the quote of the day in the New York Times that day before the Belmont Stakes when he won the Triple Crown. That at the sale, he asked our advice and we said, sell your house, don't sell this horse. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so, uh, he was Jeff, extraordinary real quick, in so many real ways. Quickly, real quickly on that, you're talking about as a one-year-old. A minute ago, you're talking about buying two-year-old horses. How much harder is it to forecast when they're one than when they're two? Well, clearly, you have to forecast, do a lot more forecasting in a one-year-old than you do in a two-year-old. So in a one-year-old, you're, you're forecasting how they will look when they're running with weight on their back. When you're doing a two-year-old, you can actually see that. So it's, it's more... It's more reliable, but it's also more expensive because more people are see it as well. And uh, right, but we 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 tend to be for one reason or another, we tend to be about as good buying the yearlings as we are with the two year olds, because we're looking so much deeper. You talk about the heart of American pharaoh, the left the left ventricle, uh, the thickness of the septum in his left ventricle, and the amount of blood he pumped, and the volume of that, and it was which is also also his heart, the lungs, and his spleen. But after to, to find this stuff out, it took 35 years and millions of dollars of private research yeah. for everything that worked. There were, you know, 20 things that didn't. Sure. But yeah. The heart turns out to be related to so many other things. It's so important. And all you know, like 99 percent of the horses that win major races are in the top 20 percent for the, these cardiac variables. And once we nail that, which took years of research. And that's a that's a good history of science and breaking paradigm story how we got to that. But once we got that, yeah, and, and American Pharaoh was off the scale on that as well as the other things. That the other how hard how hard is it to measure a horse's heart? You got to get some equipment in there. How many horses' hearts do you measure every year? We measure thousands a year, maybe four or five thousand a year, and we've been doing it for over twenty years. Oh enormous gosh. databases, and you have to have that. You cannot compare. You have to compare only to horses the same age within 30 days, the same weight and the same height and the same sex. And you mm -hmm. have to have thousands of every little category to compare to. Or mm -hmm. We can't compare like a 14-month, 900-pound filly to a 16-month, 1,000-pound colt. Right. Forget right. it. You can't right. do it. It won't work. But it does work when you hone in and do it right. And you also have to have a technician who's done thousands. Try going into a stall with a horse jumping around with a machine, if you know anything about racehorses, they're basically wild animals that people learn how to deal with. And go in with a machine and stick a stick a probe in his side and not get killed, let alone get reproducible data. But we figured out how methodologies to do that. We had to invent a machine that's now used portably that does ultrasound in order to get that done uh, 30 years ago and uh, mm -hmm. change the entire echocardiography uh, protocol for how to do it, change the transducers. Uh, uh, frequency in megahertz, and but, but uh, we figured out how to do it. It was hard. It, it sounds like fun. We, we're we're all about the science around here, so it's it sounds like a good long. It's a long arc. You gotta you gotta do layer after layer. Willing, you have to be willing to be honest about how good is this data? Yeah, right. how much data do I need? And then not stop until you get it. Yep, yep. So Jeff, we've we've got the race coming down on Saturday. We're we're glad to be back in that world. Essential quality is the is the leading uh, horse on the betting odds at two to one, which seems pretty short. What what do you know about the field? Are there some horses here that you know more about than others? Are there some horses here you're excited about? 
you know, I think this is a really exciting Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby is always three years old, young three-year-olds. That's basically adolescence. It used right. to be the debutante party for horse racing. Who's okay. new? In, who's good in the new crop? Now, so, so the pressure of money and there's, there's a, you know, it's like it could be the end of the career. When it was three-year-old, they're done. But anyway, so they're all young. None of them have gone this distance before, which is a critical variable. And uh, for example, essential quality, he carried 117 pounds when he won the bluegrass so impressively. But he's going to carry 127 pounds for the Kentucky Derby, 10 mm -hmm. pounds. Most mm -hmm. handicappers would tell you that's a big, big deal. Mm -hmm. And it's not so predictable what's going to happen. In fact, the Kentucky Derby, because they're going to go a mile and a quarter, the whole paradigm has to shift. It's not how fast they are. It's how they slow down. Mm -hmm. When you see horses passing other horses in the stretch, 99% of the time, they're just slowing down less than the horses around. And in the Jeff, Kentucky real quickly, Derby, Jeff, remind us about the distances, because we're most of us are accustomed to thinking about the Derby being the short one or shorter. And then the Belmont comes around the end and everyone's talking about, the oh, the it's the long, a it's a long race. But what yeah, you're no. suggesting is these horses are young and they haven't even run a mile and a quarter yet. No way. They've run a mile and an eighth. One of them okay. ran a mile and three sixteenths. I think that was which race that and, was there. And yeah. that last eighth is especially important because of this slowing down. It's a killer. I mean, you know, they're running. These are some of the very best horses in the country. So they're running near the against the best, the best times, this and that. And, you know, it's like it would be like Usain Bolt. Would it make a difference if he had to run a mile? Of course it would. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, you know, no matter how dominant he is at a sprint. Mm -hmm. So now, essential quality. A and in that same race, highly motivated. who's ten to one in the morning line, right? When you when you extrapolate out the the, the logarithmic fatigue curve for how these two horses uh, slow down as they run, which by the way is reproducible unless they get hurt or sick. The highly motivated, who's ten to one, comes out at almost the identical time for a mile and a quarter. So he's going to be. He's not. And he, he was second, not beaten by much in the, uh, the bluegrass. So he's not going to give away, uh, you know, he's not going to be easy just because essential quality beat him. It doesn't mean he beat him in a mile and a quarter. Yep, in fact, yep. I think they're very much even. Then you got three unbeaten horses here, not just essential quality. You got Rock rock Your World, never lost a race. You got, uh, who else is unbeaten here? Uh, Helium, Smarty Jones. He should never have been a favorite except for all the hoopla about Smarty Jones when he had the Derby, although he did win. But he was unbeaten. That's a big deal. In my youth, and I'm getting to be an old fart now, I used to ride racehorses, exercise. And I can tell you, when you go out with a group of horses, especially on the countryside, some horses want to be in front. And they'll kick the other horses and they'll drop dead before they'll be second. And others uh -huh. don't care. They'll, they'll drop in line. There's yeah. some horses, man, they'll do whatever it takes to win. And if okay, they're so unbeaten, Jeff, that, you don't know how good they are. That's really interesting to hear you say that because you're so like about the numbers otherwise. And that feels like the psychological variable. It's not just human psychology, it's horse psychology. And yet it's something you believe in. Well, there's data to prove it. I mean, talk about data. the data. What kind of data is it? What they, you know, they, they've run hard enough to be in the front. How do you know if that's the most they got if they've never been challenged? You know, mm -hmm. if you don't have the data. So you can't really be arrogant about how good they are. You'd say, well, we don't know. And uh, let's see, who else is on close times? Hot Rod Charlie. If I, if I extrapolate out the logarithmic fatigue curve for how he runs, he comes up with the same time in a mile and a quarter. It's essential quality. So you got okay. three or four unbeaten. 
you got a, a, a two of them that can that extrapolate to the same time as the central quality, and they're all real, real long odds. So this is a great betting race. You got That's three great. or four races, three or four horses with with the data suggests they really got a shot. They're really long odds. That's so wonderful. Jeff, that's we're, we're going to have to wrap out of time, unfortunately, because we could have this conversation for a long time. But as always, love hearing from you. You give us a different perspective on this stuff. And just to reiterate, you named two horses that have longer odds, much longer odds than essential quality, highly motivated and hot rod Charlie. Their logarithmic fatigue curves make them good matches for essential quality, even though they're much more favorable bets than essential. Quality. And rock your world is it? Rock your world is the third that you would recommend taking a look at. Fantastic. All right, Jeff, always a pleasure. Wish you the best with the work you're doing and wish you the best with the weekend. Hope you have a great one. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Jeff Cedar, regular guest of the show and a, a longtime horse guy. He's a buyer for horses and he's bringing very different methodology to that buying process. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Monday. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the third quarter now, traditionally an open lines segment, which has become an open sports segment in the time of COVID. However, special week, NFL Draft Week. It is, of course, Kentucky Derby Week, as we just talked about with Jeff Cedar, but we've also got the NFL draft. It's going to happen before the Derby. It's going to happen Thursday night and then Friday and then Saturday. We've got three days of it coming up. If you're paying attention to the sports pages, you're seeing lots of conversation about the NFL draft. It's one of our favorite topics. It brings together all of our greatest interests. American football one forecasting debate numbers, uncertainty, uncertainty, conventional wisdom versus models. There's all kinds of good stuff here. And I tell you guys, there's, one person I most wanted to talk to in the world about this, and it's somewhat partly because I've never met him before. So I am delighted to welcome to the show for the first time, Timo Riska. Timo is with PFF, Pro Football Focus, of course. We've talked to lots of Pro Football Focus folks over the years, and we love those guys, but we've never talked to Timo. Timo, you, you, may, you may read him or follow him and not even know it. I didn't for a while because his Twitter handle is PFF underscore Moo. Timo, of the many mysteries we want to solve here today, why the Twitter handle? But first, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. We are delighted to have you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm happy to be here and talk about the draft. So, Timo, um, you you get you get described too often as a German mathematician. Tell us more than that about yourself. What is it? What part of Germany? Well, how long in Germany? How'd you end up in the states? And and what part of the math world are you most familiar with? Yes, yeah, sir. I am. Um, Located very, very close to Frankfurt, actually. I guess that, that's a big city uh, a lot of people know. And um, yeah, I, I was, I mean, I, I studied mathematics and um, I, I started um, watching, watching football at the NFL like 10 years ago. And I mean, of course, I, I, I realized very quickly that there, there's kind of a, a connection between those two things. Um, because like numbers always always play played a huge role in, in football even even before the the analytics movement like um, was up and yeah so so I kind of always um, mix mix these two things together uh-huh. and at some point yeah at some point I um, I, I got a Twitter account and I, I 
uploaded some stuff that that I made, and and, and some people some people saw it, and um, yeah, so I, I got to know a, a few guys. You you already had had on the show, I guess. So for example, Eric Eager, obviously my my colleague now, but also like Ben Baldwin or Josh Hermsmeyer. I think you you had had them on sure. the show. Sure. Um, they may be and... up there, Timo. They may be up there in our most frequent guests on this show, and yeah. not <laughs> just had them on this show. Which which makes a lot of sense, I think. So, Timo, so you're still located there in Germany. They've not somehow been able to persuade you to make the trip over to Cincinnati and, and hold yeah, no, no. I don't know I mean, why you would turn that down, man. I mean, it feels like they're just kind of taking over downtown Cincinnati. They've got these <laughs> studio sets now. It looks like a it looks like a like a big playground essentially for the folks that are interested in this kind of stuff right i mean i, I mean i obviously I, I have family here and uh, i don't plan to to move to the, U, the u.s but but i i would have i mean it, it was planned that i actually visit the um cincinnati uh, maybe even for for last year's draft but then obviously the pandemic had yeah, it, right. and so 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 yeah the, these plans got delayed a little bit but i definitely plan to to visit the, the pff headquarters at okay. some point um you're going to have a hard time taking part in the live festivities given the time of the first round anyway, right? This thing's kicking off 8 p.m. Eastern, so that's going to be yeah, it's, it's, two, 2 o'clock in the morning for you. Right, yeah. A little rough, a little <laughs> rough. Hey, but, but we are curious about this. It's a minor thing, but where does PFF Moo come from? You're, everyone else has got these proper names. and yours is- <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, I mean, it's just the, the, the two last letters of my, of my um, first name. And... Um, my my then girlfriend now wife like used to call me like this i, I don't know why maybe <laughs> maybe timo was too long but it's not very long but for okay. some reason it was too long so um she just called me actually it's it's not really pronounced moo it's it's more like mo <laughs> okay. okay and yeah so and i kind of um liked it and then i just used it at, as an online alias um kind of frequently and uh, that's why i um, called my Twitter handle like this, and I never changed it. I'll, 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 these, these handles have lives of their own for Denture. All right, Timo, tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about the draft, and we can take this in a lot of different angles, but I, I think maybe what I'm, the start place, starting place is, like, what are you most interested in about the draft this year? And, and just let's, let's start there. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in, in general, um, given given my background, like I'm I'm not that kind kind of a, a film watcher. I mean, I obviously I enjoy I enjoy watching football and I enjoy watching um, good players play play football. But obviously, I'm I'm not coming to the draft um, um, with the goal of, of of finding out all the details about the about the players. Okay, which players has has the has has which traits and. Um, all the details of the of the technique of, of the players that like that's not something that yeah. I'm an expert in. Yeah. I mean obviously. Um so I'm I'm looking more at like at the at the macro perspective um for, from the draft like like finding out which which traits might might matter more or um like lo- looking at looking at um, the, the uncertainty that, that comes with the draft. Like is there is there a difference in and obviously there's there's a lot of uncertainty about about each draft prospect. That's um, that's something we have to accept. But like, are there differences across positions? Like, can we be more certain for for some positions than than for others? And stuff like this. That's that's kind of generally um, what I'm most most interested in the in the draft in general. Um, yeah, I mean, of, of course, for for this year's draft, it's just yeah. I mean, obviously, the the third overall pick is <laughs> like the the run thing. Um, um, 
everyone everyone wants to know it's kind of uh, feels like that's that's when the draft starts yeah um, so what what, what can you tell us about about that particular issue so one of the things of many that you've done that caught my eye was your work uh, replicating or testing and it did replicate the the the, the loser's curse draft chart that I did with Thaler years ago, but yeah. you, you improved it in one very important way. You provided a, a rigorous objective answer to a question that many had speculated for a long time, that things were different for quarterbacks. So you essentially came up with two different charts, one for non-quarterbacks or, and one for quarterbacks. And the one for non-quarterbacks looks just like the one we estimated years ago, which is goes in the wrong direction. It's upward yeah. sloping in the first round. Yours peaks kind of mid-round. But the point is the same, that the top picks are actually not the most valuable picks if you consider uncertainty and compensation costs. However, you go out and say, but for quarterbacks, that's not the case, that they do. It is downward sloping. It's not very downward sloping. It's a lot less flat. It's a lot less steep, a lot flatter than traditional trade charts. But you showed that it was very different for quarterbacks. So what, what is the implication of all of that for the big story in the 2021 draft, which is all the quarterbacks that are being considered at the top of the draft? Yeah, I mean, it, it basically means like if, if you're a team like like the Falcons and you have a quarterback who is, is 36, 37, Matt Ryan, I mean, he's a very good, good quarterback still probably and maybe he might have two two good years left. Um, but man, if, if you're sitting at four, like that's that's a huge opportunity because, I mean, just because he's he's a good quarterback and um, he, he got, gets a new coach now, so so he might actually play play good next year, which means the Falcons will not draft at four again, and they, next year will not be a draft where where there are many top quarterbacks. So the opportunity they they are getting right now, they they won't get this in, in the next five years probably. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe in, maybe in four or five years when they um, when they might be really bad, but mm-hmm. but not 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 for the next two years. So. Um, so yeah, so they, they I think they, they should either draft a quarterback or the, the other alternatives of of course trade down because there are many, many that there should be many teams um interested in, in, in this pick. And um I guess um they they definitely I, I think they got they got calls and um so So let's take let's take that issue, Timo, because that puts you in a tough spot. It's one thing to say, well, they should take, you know, um Trey Lance over Kyle Pitts, just because quarterbacks are more valuable than tight ends, even these kind of the exceptional tight ends. But it's another to say they should accept a trade back rather than take the fourth quarterback on the board. So where are you on that? And, you, and again, you've done the, the best, most contemporary work on the value of quarterbacks and therefore the value of trading for quarterbacks. What's your position on whether the Falcons should make a pick there or trade back, assuming they've got a decent offer, like a market offer? <laughs> Yeah, I think the the um, most um, the most advantage part of, of of trading back this year for them. I mean, obviously they would miss out on on the quarterback this year, but um, I mean, apart from the fact that their the the pick they would make this year would would still be kind kind of good, <laughs> but but obviously they would most likely they would get a, a first round pick for next year because um, like. Like no, I mean the the Jets and the um, the Dolphins also have two first round picks this year, but they will probably. I mean the Jets are picking in front of them anyway. So whoever trades this them, they, they have to give up a first round pick next year, maybe even the, the year um, after this. And this means they, um, this means even if they, if they play fairly well next year and and don't have a high pick, they still have the the draft capital to to then move up again and. Um, 
take the opportunity at quarterback maybe next year or in two years. So how, like, do we think, how do we think about this question? This isn't in your model because it's outside your model because it's so hard to model. How do we think about, well, we can't just put off forever acquiring our next franchise quarterback. So, yeah, maybe the draft chart and our Timo's analysis says if a good offer comes in, they should trade back, get next year's one. And then next year, what's Timo going to tell us to do? He's going to tell us to, to trade back again. And then I'm never going to have my franchise quarterback. So how how do you consider that with, with everything else? I mean, the kind of stuff that you and I have done over the years, we don't include that in the, in the calculus. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point, um, especially because, I mean, obviously, like GMs, like the first goal of a GM is to, to keep their job. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's true. I don't know. I don't know that's, that's his wife's first prescription for yeah. him, but I'm not sure it's the owner's. I mean, I mean it, it, goes, it goes hand in hand with winning, obviously, but that's kind of the, the first goal of a GM is, is keeping, keeping the job. So you, you can't just wait forever. Um, so, yeah, that, that's why I think it makes a lot of sense to just um, draft the quarterback this year at four. Um, it, it, it might mean that you throw away some, some probability to, to, um, to win it all with, with Matt Ryan this year or next year, but this probability isn't, isn't that high anyway, to, to be honest, and given, <laughs> given the state of the Falcons. So, so they might... Um, <laughs> They might be inclined to actually like throw away a little bit of probability to 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 winning it all this year and maybe next year, but to to be set up for the future, um, twenty twenty two. Let me so Timo, let me ask you. I, I I'm agreeing with you about the Falcons. Um, would the following argument be consistent with your thinking? How about since there are so many premier quarterbacks this year, essentially a six or seven pick if they trade back, you might get the best offensive lineman. You might get the best wide receiver. You might get this year's best wide receiver and next year's best offensive lineman because normally six or seven, there aren't four or five quarterbacks necessarily going. So how would you, is there any way to take that into account that you might get the most extreme person at a very valuable position, not as valuable as quarterback, but you still might get, you know, someone in the 99th percentile of receivers that are coming out, and this is the year to do it at a six or seven spot. Yeah, I think that, that that's a fair point. But on, on the other hand, obviously, like, we don't know whether <laughs> the, um, the the prospect we think is the best receiver or the best offensive tackle is, is really the best um, receiver or the best offensive tackle. Obviously, there's, I mean, there's still a lot of uncertainty, and that's especially true for for, for, for non-quarterbacks. So for, for non-quarterbacks, like the draft purpose is even more flat, um, even more flat than for quarterbacks. And on, on the other hand, um, I mean, we, we've, seen, we've seen teams that had, that had like, um, like star wide receivers or star, star offensive tackle, but, but if, if, you don't, if you don't have the, um, the quarterback, it, it probably um, doesn't, doesn't matter too much. Like, like, I mean, the, the Lions obviously drafted Calvin Johnson and he was one of the best receivers, but um, they went 0-16. And then in, in the same draft that the Browns drafted Joe Thomas and he was one of the best left tackles. And they also went 0-16. <laughs> I mean, the best, the best receiver or the best left tackle in the game can't, can't even stop you from going 0-16. So, um, yeah, that's, that, might, that might be a, a problem with, with that logic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean... <clears throat> Another factor that I think is kind of like that that muddies all of this kind of analysis is kind of the how desperate the teams drafting these quarterbacks are and, and how kind of good they are. I mean, you know, of course, by construction, 
the, the best quarterbacks coming out of college are going to be going to the worst teams, right? Because they're the ones that kind of are in the best position. They have the highest draft slot. And so you take a team like the Patriots, for example, a team that I have a personal interest in. They're in this kind of unique position where they're probably never going to kind of buy their own media. It would be hard for them unless they got really bad to kind of naturally slot into a position where they would have one of the top quarterbacks available to them. And obviously most top, very few top quarterbacks get available free agency. So for teams like the Patriots or the Ravens or the Steelers, there's kind of perennially good teams, the ones that never really kind of creep into that top 10, their only option really is kind of trading up if they kind of want those franchise quarterbacks or getting lucky, I guess, on a quarterback outside of the top 15, top 20. And for those kind of teams, what, you know, what does the data sort of say is the better strategy? I mean, of course, the data says wait until position number 199 and draft the greatest quarterback ever. But <laughs> beyond those exceptions, like for these kind of teams that aren't going to be at, at, at kind of at the top of the draft, you know, because they're not in the bottom of the league, how they sort of renew you know, specifically this quarterbacking position. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the best, I mean, the, the, the Seahawks kind of, um, what the Seahawks did um, at the start of last decade, like they took a, a lot of shots at like cheap quarterbacks, that, um, cheap quarterbacks in, in free agency. And I think they also drafted fairly, um, fairly many quarterbacks. I, I don't have a list now, but and and obviously at some point they they hit <laughs> they, they they hit Russell Wilson and that was of course um, um, very good for them. I mean I'm not sure whether this is too um, reproducible. Um, I mean, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting question because I yeah, mean, I, mean, I, 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 calls, I guess it's sort of like. If you had the choice to sort of spread, if you regard your future draft capital as money, if you have your choice to spend your money on like one hot, you know early draft lottery ticket versus three or four later draft lottery tickets specifically for quarterback. What is kind of the better bet, I guess. And, and it has to recognize, I mean, a lot of people have been running these, a lot of people have been running these relatively anecdotal summaries that say, look, look at all the guys who have traded into the first round to take quarterback and how rarely that works out. And for that matter, look at the last 10 years of first round quarterbacks. And there's just, it's not a glorious list. Yeah. So it's, it's clearly the, the odds are more in your favor there than later, but the odds are not in your favor, even with these guys that seem like sure things. Yeah. I think that there's an interesting list. Like if, if you look at the list of quarterbacks in the first round, um, which the team didn't trade up for. So like, like throw away first, throw away first of all picks because the team didn't have to trade up that they were just there. But but if if you look at quarterbacks who weren't drafted first of all, but the teams but the team kind of settled for for them, so they, they didn't trade up, they just fell to them and they took him. I think Justin Herbert last year, mm. uh, if he if he turns out um, turns out as good as, as he was as a rookie, I think he's the only hit among those. Wow! So, wow. so that's 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 <laughs> there are quarterbacks like Marcus Mariota at the Titans just just um, kind of settled for him, like Trey Haskins. Um, so Timo, yeah. are you saying the only thing worse than trading up for a first round quarterback is waiting your turn for a first round quarterback? <laughs> is that the summary? No, but, but I think it, it kind of, it kind of moves the point that, that trading up, um, for a quarterback, um, didn't work a lot because I mean, just, just drafting a quarterback doesn't, doesn't work often. It's, it's just that, that's right. Like most, most of these quarterbacks, like 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't as good as, as, um, as they, they look in college. That's, that's, just, that's just reality, I guess. You know, Timo, I was wondering about that, about that issue today. If we had an RA, we need a Wharton Moneyball RA. I can't believe that we don't have one. But there's a, I'm curious about just the, how many quarterbacks in the last, I don't know, 30 years would we say were in that category of quarterback that you'd build a team around? Like, you, okay, you'll stop. You'll stop searching for a quarterback. You'll just ride this guy for 10 years or 12 years. How many are there? And then put that in the numerator and put in the denominator just how many quarterbacks were drafted. Forget the free agent yeah. guys, but it's like the number of guys that have been drafted in the last 30 years and the number of them that have been like essentially franchise quarterbacks, even if they're not necessarily Super Bowl guys, you're willing to settle in and take this guy for a long time. What's that percentage? And we could just kind of speculate here on what that number is, but I think it would be shockingly low. And I think it'd be useful for all of us to keep that number in mind. Because we, we, we just forget. And every year, a draft like this rolls around. You're like, oh, man, we're like, we're like a wash in franchise quarterbacks. Like, no, actually, we're not. That's not the way it's going to turn out. Right. So, I, I, and, I, and I think that that is worth keeping that low probability in mind and, and acknowledging the uncertainty in the entire process of evaluating quarterbacks. But I think the, a better calculation is, you know, to use the franchise quarterbacks, however we define them, as the denominator and ask, among the franchise quarterbacks that we've seen over the last 20 years, how many were in the top 10? How many were actually taken in the top 10? How many were available outside of the first round? How many were available in the second half of the first round, et cetera, right? Because that's really kind of what, when we're making these kind of trade up or down decisions, you should definitely keep in mind that there's a high risk with anything. Every, every single one of them is a lottery ticket with perhaps a low probability, but is it worth paying that extra money, that extra well, future draft capital well, to move up to like, is, is a top 15 pick actually any demonstrably better of a lottery ticket than a bottom, you know, a bottom, a 15 to 30 pick versus a below 30 pick. Timo, is there ever a scenario if you're the Jets or the Jaguars, you have three picks in the first 35, both of them. Any possibility they draft a second quarterback at the beginning? No, no, no. I'm asking a serious question. Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I actually wondered about the same just today because I saw saw a mock draft um, today where Justin Fields fell to 32. Um, and I was like, Chris okay. Sims. it's Chris Sims, Mark right, Kraft. right. And I, I was like, okay, so 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 the Jag- so all of them, the the, the Jets, the Jaguars, um. Both of them actually passed on him with the second first round pick, and I was like, should they have drafted him? <laughs> I think I think it's an interesting discussion, but I think the problem is like if you're the Jaguars, I think that the second pick is at twenty five, yeah. um, and the Jets twenty three. So, yes, so the problem is like if if one of these top quarterbacks fell to twenty five, this, this this tells you okay, there are like twenty teams in front of us that don't have interest in this quarterback. So this means that the trade value of this quarterback, if, if he doesn't um, turn out as, as your starter, will probably be not that high. Because like you have 20 teams um, are, are not interested in him. So your, your, market, your trade market is, is really, really low. So, so, so if you never played him because the other one, so if Trevor Lawrence turns out better and, and they have to trade Justin Fields, who they picked at 25, like they have like five teams who, who have interested, who have maybe interest in, in Justin Fields. So maybe that's, that's not that good that good of an idea that's an interesting interesting perspective on it and and a, there's a, a political perspective is that it probably is more palatable to do it even the next year so i mean people talk about the dolphins are they going to take another quarterback after after tua 
And it, it, that they, even that's it's controversial, but at least it's a year separated. So maybe it's a little more palatable. Let's ask a different question about the draft team, because you've done some work on this as well. And that is, are some teams or some general managers better at the draft than others? And I don't mean managing their picks and making optimal trades, which is kind of how we've been talking about it. I mean, in the actual selection of players. And this is something that you're, you, you dove into in February with a very cool article on PFF. Uh, and, um, you know, we've, we, I, I, I did some analysis on this years ago at Sloan, and then there have been some other folks who've shown it's essentially, it seems like it's chance. And you dove in here and did some digging around and you conditioned on lots of things. I'm curious what conclusions you drew at the bottom of this article. Again, we're talking about a PFF article from February where you're asking, are some teams better than other teams? And Eric, you should pay a lot of attention to this conversation. Yeah, so I mean, so I mean, first of all, um, like when you when you look at draft success, and then you, you you measure it some way, like we measure it with our PFF raw statistic, and then we compare the 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 actual the actual production of a player in his first four years compared to the expectation based on his draft pick, and um, and then we can kind of make a list um, which team drafted the the best players at given 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 the draft position. And and I mean, of course, but when you make such a list, you will have like some team at one, <laughs> and you will have um, some team at thirty-two. And this this is this is always the case. If if you right. if you make a list of, of random things, then then someone has to be uh, at the top and someone has to be at the bottom. But like the question is whether this comes from um, comes from actual skill or, or, or just luck, and like the the problem is, I mean, of, of course, the, the the data set is not very huge. Like each team makes six or seven picks maybe eight picks each year and um we have like data for 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 12 13 years but then gms change obviously and the, the problems like the, the bad gms so the gms that didn't have that didn't right. have um, luck in the draft they, they changed and the the gms that that have luck in the draft they don't change because their team is successful so it's it's it's, it's kind of a positive feedback loop so so the the um, gms that that got lucky in the draft they, they are allowed to keep their job. And then it looks like, okay, the, the, um, Mickey Loomis from the Saints, he had the, the best draft success over the last 12 years. And he was like one of the only GMs who, who actually um, worked for his team for, for that long. So, so, you, so you might think, okay, right. but, but that's, that's only true because he kind of, kind of got lucky in the draft in, in the first time. But and obviously he also <laughs> got, got lucky with the quarterback. And that, that's the other problem where, when we do this kind of analysis, because obviously, like we can only measure the, the production of a player, but we, we we cannot we cannot measure the actual talent of a player. Okay, and, so hold on. Someone's going to push you and say he didn't get lucky on that quarterback. He signed that quarterback, so that wasn't a draft. He 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 took it. Well, maybe he got lucky on the health of Breeze. I don't know, but it was outside the draft process. But Timo, push on to your conclusions because you cut this and you conditioned it enough that you ended up, I think, saying that there was some difference or, or, or not, but just remind us what you concluded in the end of this article. Yeah. I mean, in, in the end, I concluded that I, I can't find any evidence that, okay. that some, some GMs are better. Like, like most GMs have, have good stretches and, and then they have bad stretches. Like Jason Light from, from the Buccaneers, he had some terrible stretches early on. And, and last three years, he just hit on every, on every draft pick. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. And, but, but he will, most certainly he will have a bad stretch again at some point over the next uh, three years. So, so Tima, that's, you, you, that's may be, <laughs> you may be more of a fatalist about this than I am. We've been digging around on this issue ourselves. I've been, I've been working with Zach, Zach Drapkin, a former 
assistant producer on this show and a student here at Wharton. And we've looked at something like 136 general managers over the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years, trying to see if there's much signal in their performance. And light is one of the few that we would say with some confidence is drawing from a bin that's not a, not a zero mean bin, playing above chance. It looks like that's in our numbers. And I, I saw him popping out at the end of yours. And I realized, as you say, any list will have a top and a bottom. It's got some randomness in it. But light is the only active general manager that we, he's the one of the active general managers. He's the one we're most confident might be pulling from a non-chance um, uh, uh, bin. Um, guys, we're about to have to wrap up with Timo and it's a shame because I would like to talk to him for another half hour. We've got some other great folks we're going to talk to. Well, Timo, we'll bring you back, but before you go, I, these guys might have some other questions for you. Shane, you've been trying to get in here. Well, it's kind of a question slash comment. It's just kind of pointing out, I think what Timo was about to talk about is that evaluating kind of the success of a, of, 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 a, of a pick, especially a quarterback, is all about how that quarterback is developed as well within the organization. So, you know, Mickey Loomis in, in New Orleans perhaps looks good in part because he's got one of the top coaches in football as well there. And right, so, you know, right. oh, and, and, you know, you know, this kind of this counterfactual of how well this, you know, these picks would have done in the absence of either a particular general manager or a particular coach is what we're trying to kind of get at when we estimate how skilled a particular pick is, but it's really hard to evaluate because it's this of multi-part interaction between of the player itself, the coach and, and a the small general sample. manager building the team around them. And a small sample. What a, what a great recipe yeah. for figuring out what one yeah, guy's yeah, that, That's a very good point because in, what I also found is that most of the, most of the surplus value that the, the Saints got from the draft picks were actually at the offensive side of the ball. And you kind of have to think that oh. Sean Payton plays a huge role there. And obviously Drew Brees also plays a role there. I mean, he, he definitely helps his offensive linemen to, to develop. He, he obviously helps his wide receivers to produce with his accuracy. So, yeah. It, so, it, it, yeah. Drew Brees and Sean point, Payton uh, definitely played a huge role with, with the draft success great, for the Saints. It's a great observation. That's really interesting. That could be looked at more broadly. Like, what... what when teams are having known strength on the coaching staff on one side of the ball, do they, do the players end up performing better? So interesting because you know, that impacts a player's career and yet we evaluate them as if it doesn't Eric jump in here. Last word. Yeah. So I was just going to ask you Timo of the five major quarterbacks that people are talking about, how much separation do your models suggest are really between them? Um, do you mean like, um, Specific prospect models for for this year, or, or yeah, specific general... prospect models for this year. This, yeah, I'm not asking you to. I know you've. Uh, Cade said you read that a lot of the analysis that he had done with Dick Thaler years ago. I'm saying this year's draft, okay. these five quarterbacks, like, is Trevor Lawrence, you know, twice as likely to be a franchise quarterback than let's say Justin Fields or whoever you want to put as the fifth one? Like, how much separation is there really? Or in my view. I'm not so sure he's that much better than any of these other quarterbacks. And so, yeah, I'd probably draft him first, but I don't have that much certainty in it. But I'd love to hear what the mathematical models say. Yes, sir. So um, our models like Trevor Lawrence and and Justin Fields a lot, um, in in part because, I mean, obviously they they played at at least two, two very good years. And um, so, so Mac Jones obviously had, had only, had only one, one year he started, and you know, obviously he also had a very good supporting cast, and that of course goes into the model. And um, the model also doesn't like Trey Lance that much because um, 
Yeah, I mean, he obviously also um, he doesn't have he doesn't have a, a lot of sample size, and, and obviously he has he has all the traits. But but when, when you make when you create a model um, out of production, um, then the, the the small sample size of course always um, is is a problem. Right, especially when it's not um, FBS football. It makes makes the comparisons even tougher. Timo, Correct. before we let you go, do you have a t- do you have a team? You're sitting over there outside of Frankfurt. Is there an American football team that you have a, a preference for? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm actually a Buccaneers fan, so hey, hey. Fan. I got kind of lucky this year. <laughs> this is a man right. with good taste. Well, look, if if uh, if you're ever in the United States, I go to about half the Buccaneers game every year. You and me, Timo, will go together. Come on, let's go. Sounds sounds good. You got to get out. You got to get over here, Timo. All right, listen, man. Thanks for the time. Love the work. Please keep doing the stuff. We read you all the time. Wish you the best with it. We'll look forward to talking to you more down the road. Thanks for having me. You bet. Timo Riska, he's with PFF. You can see him on Twitter at PFF, at PFF underscore Moo. Timo, thank you. All right. We are now going to take a few minutes break and then come back and talk more NFL draft. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Every week we do it here on SiriusXM. We are rolling into the fourth quarter now. We're kind of doing an NFL draft special, the second half of the show, a full hour on the NFL draft. Cade Massey hosting with my longtime friends and colleagues, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen in here talking. Shane and I were chatting NFL draft over a beer and pizza last night. That was good fun. We should have just busted out the tape recorder. Glorious, Shane. glorious. You yeah, were dropping that was really some, nice. You were dropping some good takes on, on stuff. We, we ju- we're just off a conversation with Timo Riska at PFF, and I want to say, if you want to – jump onto pff you can get a subscription from those guys 30 percent off 30 percent off a subscription by using promo code draft 30 draft 30 we are big fans of pff around here we're going to talk to somebody who's not from pff though we've got ben robinson in this section benjamin robinson data scientist down in dc he's creator of grinding the mocks he's taken the draft world by storm in the last couple of years with his grinding the mocks People only thought they were taking advantage of, of mock drafts until Benjamin came along. He said, hey, I'll show you what to do it. Let's bring even more in. Let's bring some data science in. Let's crowdsource this stuff. And a lot of people are using Benjamin's material. Now, Benjamin, we, we've talked about your stuff on the show. We haven't had you on the show. So welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a longtime listener, at least a long time in the last few years. And so it's an honor to be on with you guys. Well, we're pl- very pleased to have you. You can follow Benjamin at, at bnj underscore robinson on twitter at bnj underscore robinson and grinding the mocks you google that you're not gonna have a hard time finding him except you'll find a lot of other people referencing his stuff he says how busy are you this week how much fun are you having this week uh, i'm knee deep in stuff this week this is the the week when uh people are kind of rounding out their final mock drafts and waiting for the kind of most accurate of the historically accurate mock drafters to come out with their final drafts that kind of source the the and drive the final predictions that will uh, come out later this week so tell us a little bit about that you the the well let's talk about the enterprise in general first and so you're you're aggregating mock drafts essentially and of course even from the time you started just a few years ago till now there are more mock drafts aggregate which has to be helpful to you so it seems to me that some people have been doing some studies recently writing articles about it evaluating the relation between mock drafts and the actual outcomes. What are people saying about how diagnostic these mocks are? So to be honest, I think that the the public perception of mock drafts is that 
you know, people are trying to get the pick and the, and the, the team and the player all matched up. And that's really hard to do. So yes. my philosophy is I have a different kind of objective function than I think the average mock draft does. This is beautiful. This was going to be my first question, Benjamin. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. So my objective is that I want to kind of get as close as possible. And so sometimes when people look at my rankings, they don't make sense. And that's because sometimes the data is saying a bunch of different things. And so we're trying to find the area in between two certainties to come up with the approximation that we think will get as closest to what might happen on draft night. And so um, my data does really well in terms of how I think about the draft, which is minimizing, you know, your mean squared error, adjusting for low picks being less valuable than high picks. So okay. um, I think about the draft a little bit differently, I think, than the, the average, you know, draft Nick does. Just so, for our listeners, Benjamin, just to be clear, if someone, just for our listeners, mean squared error, just to be clear, in yours, if someone's drafted 10th, and you had him seventh. That's an error of three in your case. That's you could square that. That's nine. But of course, getting someone right at certain parts of the draft is more costly than others. So that's what you meant, just for our listeners, what Benjamin meant by a weighted mean squared error. Yeah, exactly. So you know, for example, in 2019, the Raiders selected Cullen Farrell from Clemson, and he was selected at four. And in my data, I thought he was going to be you know later in the draft. But if you were had your uh, you know, your druthers and you picked him higher than your mean squared error to be lower. And uh, that would help your cause in my, uh, in my weighting system. So one of the other weights you just mentioned is the recency or the, 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 the lateness of the mock draft. So you've got kind of a decay function. People start doing mocks months ago, but you're weighing the more recent ones more in terms of trying to predict the actual event. You're wearing the weighing the more recent ones more. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the economist in me believes that, um, you know, in the marketplace, the complete information in the market is closest to when the actual event happens. So uh, I weight those uh, much higher than ones that happened even a week ago. So, so Benjamin, the, the big question everyone always asks when you use the wisdom of the crowds is, you know, how much weight to put on each information source. So could you just take us through quickly how you decide how much to put on the CBS mock draft versus Mel Kuyper's mock draft versus anybody's mock draft? How, what's the weighting function and how do you determine it? It's kind of similar to what I mentioned earlier, you know, like I, I do a, a mean squared error and then I adjust for the lower picks versus the higher picks having, you know, less or more value. And then, um, you know, I, I basically take that distribution and normalize it. And that's how I uh, weight different sources. Um, so you so, use historical yeah. data, just to be clear, you use historical data on the accuracy of various drafts that different sources have and ones that are more accurate get more weight. Maybe even, I don't know if it's two times, like if one's got half the mean squared error of the other, I don't know if you use literally a proportional weighting function or how you determine that, but there's something like that. Yeah, something like that. Benjamin, give us a sense of what it translates into. So what's, what, what should be our expectation? What's your prediction for the average number of spots you're off for the top 32 picks in this year's draft? What's your prediction <laughs> for the average number of spots off? Well, I don't care where it is across all 32, just raw average. How close are you going to be? That's a tough question. And I think it's this year will be a huge test of, the, of some of the methods that I have. Ideally, you'd think that, that having a crowdsource method would give you a lower um, kind of error than average. But this year, I think there's a lot of information that we lack. The yeah. market that um, of ideas is normally full with, we had a full college season. We had a yeah. combine where people were on the same pl playing field. We have pro days. And we're missing a lot of important information. And so information is breaking late in some cases or not yep. breaking at all. And so we don't yep. know as much about the players as we normally do. Still need a number from you. What's your prediction? I'm trying to get and, out of doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm to, to extend to yeah. make uh, Cade's question even more subtle. Um, 
You can imagine the top. Not hard to make it more. Well, no, no. I'm just saying you or a subtle prediction. You can imagine a different error for the top ten versus the rest of the first round because you could imagine if someone said an error of four on average in the top ten, that's not okay. But if you told me an error of four for the top thirty-two, so what are your dreams when it comes to like if I told you you got nine out of the top ten in relatively the right order, would you be thrilled? Would that be like oh that that would be a dream? I don't know if I'd say that'd be a dream, but I, I would be I'd be very pleased. I mean. It also depends on who's picking in the, in the top 10. You know, some teams tend to go earlier or later than expected when it comes to picking players. And so this year, you know, I think that we have a pretty solid top 10. So you're, you're talking about something that lots of folks are talking about, which is just the uncertainty because of the pandemic. I mean, there's been less football. It's been harder to scout these guys. It's surely going to be just a noisier draft than usual. So no one's going to judge you if you end up with a, a, a worse performance, quote, performance this year than the past couple of years. But give us some insight into some of the bigger questions for this draft. So obviously, it's kind of what it's a great it's a fun draft to speculate on because it's quarterbacks at the top and there's even some uncertainty about which quarterbacks are going to be taken. So one of the biggest questions, the biggest question in the draft is who the Niners are going to take at three between the quarterback prospects are the mock drafts that you aggregate suggesting any, anything basically the Mac Jones versus Justin Fields, but maybe even Trey Lance. I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. Um, there's, I think people see the reports about Mac Jones. They just don't trust it. I think there's a lot of smoke screens going on. It's even worse than last year when there was a bunch of smoke about Justin Herbert being taken before to a Tonga Vailoa. This year it's even worse. So I think even though the reports haven't changed and the information is the, is the same as it was, you know, this year with the pro days, players stock would go up around their pro day and then go back down. And so yeah. now you're seeing, Trey Lance coming back up, Mac Jones going back down. Maybe he'll come back up again. Justin Fields seems to be going down. So it's really a roller coaster of uh, of QB emotions in this in this marketplace <laughs> of mock draft um, ideas. And so I, I'm I'm still waiting for something to be clear, and it's not coming yet. So the third ranked player in my data by expected draft position is Kyle Pitts from Florida. He's not getting picked third, but yeah, it speaks to right. kind of the variance and like the turbulence that's going on in the data right now that it hasn't really cleared out like it has in the past. For hey, the past that's an day. answer. That's an answer, Benjamin. You're saying, in fact, it, from what I'm saying, there, there isn't a clear um, prediction of what San Francisco is going to do. And that captures that captures what's going on. So that that's that's helpful. What about on the wide receiver side? Uh, it's the other it's it's, a, it's buried deep below quarterbacks, but it's a really interesting storyline as well. Those first the, the first couple of guys off the board, other than quarterbacks, are going to be receivers of some kind other than pits are going to be some wideouts probably. Alabama's wideouts, LSU's wideouts. What do you see the the mocks saying about what order those guys are going to go in? Um, so yeah, Jamar Chase from LSU, uh, wide receiver there. You know he's been the, the number one wide receiver this whole process. Um, I think the only way that he isn't the number one wide receiver taken is if um, it gets further down to the point where you're picking with a team that that tends to go against the grain. So. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it'd be Jamar Chase followed by Jalen Waddle and uh, Devonte Smith, both of Alabama. So those are the how those are how the data see it. But you know, last year Henry Ruggs was the first overall wide receiver taken, and that's because right. the Raiders right. tend to pick players you know uh, earlier than their expectations. So this year, you know, and the the teams that kind of do that could be a team like uh, Miami Dolphins, but you know they could potentially trade out of their pick. So it's really um, you know I had in my mock draft that posted on Football Outsiders this past week. Um, Jamar Chase going at number seven to the Detroit Lions. So he has a decent range of outcomes. I don't think he falls out of the top 10. 
Okay. Well, I, I saw that Josh Hermsmeyer wrote up a piece maybe just today on using some relatively advanced stats on forecasting how the college receivers do in the pros. He used your stuff. He ensembles some model and threw some Benjamin Robinson stuff in there. And he ends up saying his stuff says waddle. He says, look, despite the chatter about chase, he's going to say waddle, which is kind of a fun upset pick to pull for on Thursday night. Benjamin, we have to run. This was too quick a conversation. We could do this for a long time. We will have you back. We love the work that you're doing. Hope you have a great, great fun this week. And we look forward to talking more about your stuff down the road. That's Benjamin Robinson grinding the mocks. You can follow him on Twitter at Benj underscore Robinson. Benjamin Robinson, one of the great uh, little tools you need to be paying attention to for the draft this coming weekend. Our second guest this segment is Alex Vigderman. Alex is lead research analyst for Sports Info Solutions. They provide analysis and tools for both public schmoes like us and team consumers and football data and baseball data. Alex after finishing here at the great University of Pennsylvania, worked a little bit in healthcare IT and some work with the Red Sox before moving over to Sports Info Solutions. Alex, first time on the show, delighted to have you. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Listen, we, we, we like to be stat heads and talk models and stuff, and we want to do a little bit of that, but you've, you work for an outfit that's providing like real details on some of these players. So can you give us a little bit before we before we back off to some of the stats, can you give us a little bit on, on the quarterback debate this year? Like why, why does everyone hate Mac Jones so much? Tell me that. And why is Justin Fields slipping? And in the end, what do you think is going to, who do you think, who do you, who is your pick for the best quarterback in the long term out of this year's crop? Well, obviously, you know, the obvious answer is Trevor Lawrence for the, the guy who's going to end up being the best uh, in terms of grades. We have him sort of as tier on its own. Okay. Hold on, Alex. So what about, what about Trevor versus the field? So, I have to, I would probably say the field mm-hmm. and that's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that framing, but I think that that's the way to go because these days, these quarterbacks that are, especially, you know, you're talking about the guys who are taking two, three and, and you know, top of the draft really gets to be a lot of quarterbacks. A lot of those, those guys don't really work out. And so, yeah, the odds of, of especially one guy versus maybe four. Others. Okay. 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 So how about Trevor and Trey versus Zach? Uh, who else we got? Justin and uh and mac two, two versus threes the consensus um, one versus the probable five versus two right three. i probably go with the one and five there i okay. think that lawrence has so the one thing that lawrence has that i think some of these other guys don't is the track record over several seasons yeah. i mean you don't see a lot of guys you think of the mitch trubisky's of the world you don't see a lot of guys have that full career of yeah you know, big program performance, getting to the national championships, that sort of thing that gets you to that sort of like Andrew Luck level. It's not necessarily yeah. the ceiling that you're concerned about. It's also the floor and yeah. having that, that four seasons of performance at a, at a big school that, that gives you a little bit more of a floor than some of these other guys, especially the Trey Lances of the world. Is that why they hate Mac Jones? Cause he just kind of did it in one year. Is there, are there other reasons people hate Mac Jones? I, I, yeah. So I think that unfortunately Mac Jones has the problem of coming after Tua I think if they would flip the order, whoever comes first in that, in that order looks much better. But once Tua has a rough rookie season, then oh, okay. you say, oh, the guy coming out of Alabama with all world stats. I mean, we have Mac Jones and, and Tua both had outstanding statistical profiles from all the stats that we have in terms of, and not just sort of athletically in terms of uh, Tua and stuff like that, but the, the accuracy metrics compared to expectations and all that kind of stuff, they're all off the charts. But once Tua fails 
or appears to fail. Oh, it's too early to say <laughs> that. Right, right, right. Alex, yeah, that's isn't, Alex, isn't also about Mac Jones? Isn't partially it's because people think we have to have a mobile quarterback today and Mac Jones limits your capabilities. I'm not saying he may, he might be the best pocket passer as far as we know, but we know he's, we pretty much know he's the least athletic of them and the least mobile. Couldn't that be part of it as well? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, I think that, you know, the Tom Brady's of the world are fewer and farther between at this point. You can have, and you can see this sort of Matt Ryan, Matthew Stafford tier, where those guys who are, are going to get you in this sort of bottom half of the top 10, maybe the top five a couple of years. But in terms of that outstanding performance, it is those guys who have that athletic ability. So yeah, I think just in terms of ceiling, I agree that, that Jones's limited athleticism is a problem. In terms of floor, that's not necessarily the case. Being, being an accurate passer and not having the sort of Chad Pennington, Alex Smith level of, of uh, arm talent. If you have a little bit of, of extra uh, oomph on those throws and you have the accuracy, that's going to give you a floor. And, and then the, the rest of the athleticism gives you the ceiling. So Alex, talking in these terms makes me wonder who you've got for us in the back of the draft. Cause I know you're, you're the guy who's like, don't forget about this guy. Don't forget about that guy. Cause you see college production and you have models that tell you what college production is likely to translate into in the NFL. Who are some people that we should keep our eyes on and ears open for in, in this year's draft? So at the quarterback position, I would mention Kyle Trask. He's not necessarily the back end. He's, he's sort of the, the next yep. chunk below those guys. Uh, he's really interesting just because his stats in terms of accuracy above expectation based on the throw depth and, and the coverage and that sort of thing. Uh, those numbers are pretty good. He obviously had outstanding pass catchers, the Kyle Pitts, the tight end being the, the biggest one there. Um, but he, he comes out pretty well in terms of our accuracy metrics. In terms of other positions, uh, wide receiver Elijah Moore of Ole Miss and Dwayne Eskridge of Western Michigan. Eskridge has some uh, pretty outstanding stats. Uh, so we graded 48 receivers this year, and Moore made the top 10 in our leaderboards of like 15 out of the 18 statistical leaderboards that we had for that position. So he was uh, all over the, the leaderboards for that position. Wow. He's an undersized slot guy. So like the, the ceiling, I guess we're talking about floor okay. ceiling. The ceiling's not, not there. But, you know, you have those guys that can be extraordinarily productive in college. And obviously you don't expect them to be that coming into the pros, but at least uh, the guys who have that kind of statistical profile are pretty interesting. Eskridge yep. is a similar kind of thing. Uh, slot guy. He's probably more of a mid-round pick. Um, but he, he led in our sort of total value metric, total points, uh, both in, you know, he led out wide. So he did play more out wide, uh, than he did in the slot, or at least he, he performed extraordinarily well out wide uh-huh. uh, and also had 14 yards after catch per reception in 2020, which is kind of nuts, especially considering he's not just, you know, taking screens everywhere. He is actually yeah, right. downfield. What about on the defensive side of the ball? I know it's harder with the numbers, right? You don't, it's hard, it must yeah. be harder to score those guys. So it, it's, it's harder with the numbers and partially that's just because people aren't as familiar with them. Um, yeah. One guy I found really interesting is uh, Talanoa Hufanga, who is a safety from USC. Uh, we have him as a low end starter or like a third safety in terms of his scouting grade, but statistically yep. he led the position in tackles for loss, the share of tackles among his team, pressures, sacks, interceptions. So just filled up the stat sheet. Uh, and he's that sort of like box safety type guy. Um, unfortunately, he didn't do as well in terms of uh, run defense. He made a lot of tackles sort of further downfield than you expect for a guy who's playing in the box a lot. Um, but we view him as a really interesting guy in terms of his motor. And, and at the minimum, he should be able to be a really good special teams contributor. And that gets you on a roster. And once you get on the roster, then who knows what will happen. 
anything can happen, right? Listen, we're just at the end here, but what can you tell us we're, we should be paying attention to in terms of positional value? Who, what are the, the sharpest of the sharp? How are they thinking about positional value these days in the NFL draft? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you guys are also talking to, to PFF, and we both have uh, wins above replacement metrics for, uh, you know, we don't have it necessarily for, for college, but for the NFL, positional mm-hmm. value gets built into that wins above replacement mm-hmm. model. And you definitely see that quarterback's worth, you know, multiple times more than anything else, which is not the right. case in these, in these other sports. Right. And uh, then the, the next layer is, is basically anybody else who's involved in the passing game. So, so there's a lot of discussion on uh, what's more important, pass coverage versus pass rush. We're not necessarily at the point where we feel comfortable in, in declaring one of those things, but we definitely think that uh, if you can either play corner or play edge, those are going to be the, the most important below the quarterback level, which is what you sort of see. This draft is not a great example of that. You don't have those great edge rushers that are coming out yep. this year that you've had in yep. your recent seasons. Um, so I'll be curious to see if teams kind of reach a little bit because that, that position is so important. I'm yeah, Right, they will. We but, can be sure they will, Alex. Yeah, um, and obviously receiver enters into that as well. But because receiver is is so much also dependent on the quarterback, the interesting the, the way that you sort of disentangle the value of the receiver is a little bit harder to do. Man, you're talking about some interesting stuff when you start talking about disentangling values of positions in a sport as interdependent as football. We're going to come back and have that conversation in more detail another time. Alex, listen, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for the work you guys are doing over there at Sports Info Solutions. Wish you a good draft weekend. Have fun with it. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. Alex Vigderman. Research analyst there with Sports Info Solutions. Penn alum, we didn't get him for that reason, but we're proud of him nonetheless. Enjoy the conversation. All right, guys, that's been our draft week special and another two hours here on SiriusXM. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Wharton Moneyball. Delighted to welcome to the show longtime NBA player Shane Battier. We live in the probabilities. And you have to take a probabilistic view of basketball because there's so much randomness. Makes and misses, for the most part, are random. The bounce of a ping pong ball, which determines whether you get a great draft pick or not, is random. You'd have to put yourself in a position to give yourself the best chance of success. And whether that happens or not, it's luck. Wharton Moneyball, Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business Radio.